So good morning. I'm hoping my, oh, my mic is working. That's great. Uh, it's good to be with you and greetings from Coquitlam Alliance Church. I've been uh, there for about a year now and it's, it's, this is an amazing community. So Pastor Derwin invited me to come and be a part of this, your series, Closer Than You Think, where over the summer you'll be looking at connecting with God, particularly through prayer. And when I was a new Christian, I was taught a way to pray that uh, relied on an acronym called ACTS. How many of you have heard that? A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. So my prayer sounded kind of like, God, you're amazing. I'm a sinner. Thanks for forgiving me and all the things you've given me, and here are some ways you can help me. And, uh, and, and I prayed that way for a number of years, and it was a moderately helpful guide. Uh, but then I hit a very challenging time in my faith. And for me, the structure of prayer didn't cut it anymore because it felt very heady. I went into my head and I just talked to God out of that place, but it really didn't focus on what was going on in my heart and my life. And so out of desperation, I stumbled on a different kind of prayer, the prayer of lament. And it gave me language to speak to God out of my questions and my anger and my pain. And I learned to open myself up to God in the midst of a deeply distressing experience. And over the years, I've begun uh, to believe that a meaningful prayer life is really about opening ourselves up to God in all that is going on in our lives. So perhaps this morning you're here and you have questions about God or disappointments or losses that you're grappling with or, or things you're grieving. And this morning we're going to look at prayer in the midst of suffering. And so our text this morning is found in 1 Samuel 1. It's the story of Hannah. And Hannah's in the, in the middle of a situation that she finds overwhelming, where she's helpless and she's stuck. And Hannah's story takes place in the bigger story of the people of Israel. It takes place around 1000 BC, and it occurs at the end of the period of the judges. And Israel is being attacked by surrounding nations. And not only that, that but they have internal struggles. Some of those struggles are, are political. There's rival leaders fighting each other and weak leaders. Some of them are spiritual. There's idolatry and moral anarchy. And at the book of Judges, it ends with an indictment. It says that everything, everyone did what they saw was fit in their own eyes. And then the first three chapters or four chapters of Samuel, Israel falls to the Philistines, who are Goliath's people. Many Israelites are killed and their most sacred artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, is captured by the Philistines. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel 1, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 18. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. 
Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept praying um, to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Let's pray. So God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Hannah. And God, we pray this morning that your spirit will speak to us through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hannah is the first wife of Elkanah, an Ephraimite, and he is a man from an important family. And you can see that because his father and grandfathers are listed. And Hannah's in a terrible situation. Although her husband loves her, she's childless, and she's stuck in a miserable pattern that is repeated year after year. Each year, her family goes up to Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. And each year, Hannah returns home childless. And and Elkanah's other wife, Penina, picks on her. And year after year, she goes and comes back. And she feels distraught by her barrenness. And she miserably participates in a dysfunctional family system. Now, back in the 10th century, Hannah's desperation about having a child was not just about fulfilling her maternal desires, although it was a terrible thing not to be able to have a child, but it was also a dangerous thing for women. They lost their place in the family. They lost their place in their society, and sometimes their lives could even be threatened by it. Likely, this is why Elkanah took a second wife. And barrenness was considered a sign of divine disfavor. God is looking down on Hannah, and she is found wanting. And she's aware of her own worthlessness and significance, the one that her culture assigns to her as a childless woman. And so she's also repeatedly mistreated by her rival wife, who has perhaps produced 10 sons. And she's experiencing this injustice. And it's a significant thing because it's, it's repeated in the story twice. And so she's stuck living in the shadow of persecution and injustice. And it also appears that her husband, who loves her, doesn't really understand her pain. And he says to her, aren't I better 
to you than 10 sons? Now, what barren woman would find that comforting? <laughs> I think even today we would not find that comforting. And he can't really hear his wife's pain. And he turns her sorrow into something about himself. And instead of validating her desires, he tries to refocus her on his own worth. And so it appears also that the, that the family believes that God is the one who's kept Hannah from having children. And so here we have this woman, Hannah. She's died having children by God. Her husband doesn't understand her pain, and she's mocked um, by Penina. And so if she sat down with me and told, her, uh, told me her story, I think that I would feel great compassion for her. And I think that's what the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to have great compassion for Hannah, because there's something really unusual about the way that this story is told. And in Hebrew storytelling, it's very unusual to talk about the inner life of a character. But in this story, we hear about Hannah's inner life over and over again. And so she, it says that Penaniah provoked her to irritate her until she wept and would not eat. She weeps bitterly. She's downhearted. She's deeply troubled. She's in misery. She's in great anguish and grief. And so the narrator leaves us with no doubt that Hannah is a very unhappy woman. She feels much hopelessness and despair, and we're drawn into her story by hearing about her pain. Now, verse 9 is a very pivotal verse in this story. And it's not pivotal just for Hannah, but it's pivotal for the whole of, of Israel. And so one day, Hannah is sitting down with her family. They're eating together, and she can't take it anymore. And the text says that Hannah stood up. And what happens at this point is Hannah changes her point of view, and she decides to do something different than she's ever done before. She rises up and decides to do something. And she stands at this table of suffering. She can't remain silent anymore. And she goes to the tabernacle to speak to this God who she believes is denying her from having children. And at this moment, everything changes for Hannah and for the people of Israel. And so she goes to this tabernacle in Shiloh and she boldly makes her petition before God. And she submits herself to God's justice. And it's interesting how she speaks to the Lord at this point. She brings all that she is to God. She doesn't try and clean up what she's feeling, and she weeps bitterly. She communicates to God how much she is suffering, and she speaks to the Lord in lament. She pours out her shame and her humiliation to him. She brings all that she is to God. She brings her grief and her great anguish before God. And she submits herself to God's justice, which takes the form of a crazy deal she makes. So if you give me a child and change my life, if you give me my heart's desire, I will dedicate this child to you and give you this child back. I'll give up my heart's desire if you give it to me. And as she prays, she's wrestling with her, the chaos in her own life and her trust in God's goodness. And I believe that God wants all of us to approach him in this way. He wants us to bring the, all that we are before him. He wants us to bring our sorrows and our complaints to him and to believe that he cares and will intervene. Theologian Karl Barth says this. He says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. 
And Hannah in this prayer begins this uprising against the barrenness and the emptiness that shrills her life. Another theologian, Martin Luther, he says this. He said, prayer is indeed a continuous violent action of the spirit as it's lifted up against God. This action is comparable to that of a ship going against a stream. And so prayer is a kind of labor. And even here, Hannah, in the midst of her prayer in the tabernacle, uh, faces opposition because Eli the priest sees her. He sees her weeping bitterly and, and mumbling, and he thinks she's drunk. And so he challenges her, um, and she stands up to him too. And she says to Eli, I'm not drunk. I'm praying here. My life is unbearable, and I'm turning it over to God for justice. And at that point, Eli senses that she's sincere. He changes his response, and he stands with her, and he asks for her prayers to be answered. And immediately, Hannah receives the first answer to her prayer. And the text says that she is changed, that she is no longer downcast, and she can eat. And so she's come face to face with God, and something inside has changed. And a kind of exchange has happened. So as Hannah stands up and moves toward God, as she opens herself up to God, God encounters her, and he removes her shame and her humiliation, and he brings her peace. So as she's empowered to go to God, she encounters God, and he changes her and gives her hope. And at this point, Hannah doesn't know if God will answer her prayer for a child, but she knows that God is with her. She knows that God cares for her in the midst of her grief. And human suffering is something that God cares about and responds to. Hannah receives this first answer to her prayer that God is with her, and she goes into the tabernacle empty and comes out full. Now, I don't know if you can relate to Hannah, but most of us at some time in our lives face circumstances where, where we feel hopeless, where we feel stuck, where we feel out of control and powerless. And God longs for us to come to him with all that we are. He wants us to bring ourselves into his presence and, and like Hannah, weep bitterly or whatever is going on for us. He wants us to bring God our grief, our broken dreams, and our fear. And he wants us to trust that he loves us and that he, to, to believe that God is for us and that God will be present with whatever is going on in our lives. And I believe that if we do this, that if we go and we encounter God in these really difficult places, that God will change us. God will give us hope. Now, we don't always see, receive yes as an answer to our prayers. But in this situation, Hannah receives a yes, and God gives her a child. Now, I'm not going to read the final verses of this chapter because of time, but what happens is Hannah returns home, and the Lord remembers her. She becomes pregnant, and he gives her a son. She names her son Samuel, which means God hears. And the story makes it clear that Hannah, the child given to Hannah is completely because of God's intervention, that God is the one who remembers her, that, that her son is only born because God remembers her prayers. And for Hannah, everything depends on her learning to trust in God and God answering those prayers. 
And as this story goes on, we get a glimpse of how close Hannah is to her son Samuel. And the, the narrator mentions that she breastfeeds him five times. And again, this is a really unusual detail in Hebrew storytelling. And I think the narrator wants us to know how close she is to her son, how much she loves her son, how much she values him. And the, she's not an indifferent mother, but she is faithful to God. And so when her son is weaned, she takes him to the temple and gives him to Eli and dedicates him to God's uh, service. And as we continue to read in chapter 2, we'll find out that God continues to bless Hannah, and she has uh, three more sons and two daughters. But Hannah's story is not her story alone. It's actually the story of the people of Israel. And the barrenness of Hannah is reflected in the barrenness of Israel. And the pain of Hannah's circumstances are, reflect the pain of the whole people of God. And so God is faithful to Hannah, and Hannah is faithful to God. And this relationship of trust and care leads to Samuel. And so Hannah comes out of the margins and becomes a hero of the people of Israel. And as she comes out of her emptiness, so Israel comes out of their emptiness. And out of Samuel's leadership, Samuel leads the people of Israel into a new golden age. He leads them out of this place of chaos into a place of spiritual blessing where Israel um, becomes, that moves into the greatest age that it's ever experienced. And this is a, an amazing story that God uses this one woman to shift the circumstances of Israel. And as we, as I reflect on this story, I believe God calls us, like Hannah, to stand against the disorder of the world, to come to him and to bring our lament. Now, one of the challenges that we have in doing this is I think it's hard for us to come to God in such a raw way. In our culture, and I think in our church culture, we have this idea that we should minimize our negative emotions, that we should try and be positive. And so it can feel a little bit unfaithful to God to come to God and admit that we're upset with God and to challenge the way God is working in our lives. Now, some of you are familiar with the saying, God is good all the time. I don't know if you've heard that saying. Um, and although this is true, God is good all the time, in saying it to someone who is struggling, um, it can really shut down lament in us. So it's like saying to someone struggling, you can't challenge God, you can't question what he's doing, you can't admit that you're upset because God is good all the time. There's nothing wrong with you if you just don't see it. And there are many other ways that we shut people down when they're in pain um, because it's uncomfortable for us. But this is where the prayers of lament that we find in the Psalms can be really helpful because they're a model for us and they give us permission that it's okay to express our deepest disappointments with God. And so the prayers of lament um, provide a kind of structure for us when we're in crisis, when we're hurt, when we're in despair, and they move us as worshipers from hurt to joy, from darkness to light, and from desperation to hope. And so the people of Israel, they knew what it was like to suffer. And these psalms were used corporately and individually to express their sadness. Now, some scholars would say that two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament, psalms of the people of Israel crying out to God in disappointment and pain. 
And these, these psalms are meant not just meant to be a psychological experience or a liturgical, a liturgical experience. They're not just a formula for how we can get God to answer our prayers, but they help move us out of de the depths and sorrow into a place uh, of hope. Into, this is a spiritual process that God wants to do in us. And again, these prayers are not a magic formula, but they are helping us express what we are feeling. And so the structure of the Psalms looks kind of like this. First, the psalmist would cry out to God, oh God, where are you? And then they would have a complaint. They describe their problem. God, you know, my enemies are against me. They're after me. Maybe the complaint would ask God a question. What are you doing? Then they would affirm their trust in God. God, you are good. We know that you work. You, I can trust you. Then they would make their request. God, answer my prayer. Do this for me. Overcome my enemies. They might have some more arguments. God, you are, you know, you're a covenant God. You've made these promises. And then they would bring their enemies before God. Look at these people. Look what they're doing to me. They don't love you. You're letting them win. And then finally they would acknowledge that God will respond. God, I know you hear my cry. I know you will answer me. I know, and I'm going to commit to worshiping you. And then finally they would praise God. So that's the structure of a lament psalm. But, so I want to talk about five things about lament. So the first is that lament song, uh, psalms are actually praised to God. Um, and it, it's very different than grumbling. So I don't know if you rem remember the stories of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They grumbled against God. And so they said things like, God, what have you done taking us here? They assumed the worst about God. You, God, you just brought us here to kill us in the desert. You're trying to destroy us. This is very different than the complaint of the lament psalms. So a number of years ago, I was in a small group with a woman who was very angry at God. And so when we would go into a time of prayer, she would stand up and she'd pace back and forth and she'd swear at God and she'd shake her fist at God. And I was like, ooh, this, this feels a little off. And I think <laughs> she actually didn't trust God. She believed that God was out to get her. But lament is different than that. Lament is an appeal to God based on God's character, that God is good, that God actually keeps up his side of a covenant. Lament is an expression of trust, that God is faithful, and that's why lament is praised. The second thing about lament is that lament is a sign of relationship with God, that we are attached enough to God to direct our complaints to him. So two close family members of mine adopted children when they were toddlers, and both of them described how when their kids came home to them, they'd put them to bed at night, and their kids would never cry out, ever, in the middle of the night. And at that point, they were really happy about that. Ooh, I got a good night's sleep. But as time went on, they realized that it was because their children were not yet attached to them. So their children did not trust that if they called out, that their parents would come to them. And this has been known that children in orphanages who don't receive good care just stop crying because they don't believe anyone will help them. And when we cry out to God, when we have the courage to do that, it's a sign of our relationship with God. It's a sign that we have a deep connection with God. And so as we call out to God, and as God responds, it grows our intimacy and connection with God. 
And as we, as God ministers to us in dark places, we recognize in a deeper way that God is for us. So in my 20s, I talked about this, I went through a very difficult experience that maybe we'd now call deconstruction. And I'd been significantly wounded by a Christian leader, and the ministry that I worked for didn't hold him accountable for his abuse. And I wondered at the time, where is God? Why did God let this happen to me? Is and I, would be, I began to cry out to God in my anger and pain. And I remember I was attending a church, and like we did this morning, we sang songs in worship, and as everyone else was worshiping, I was just crying out to God and telling God how mad I was at him. And I remember one Sunday, a woman came up to me, and she's like, I've never seen someone look so angry at God in worship. And I was like, well, that's because I am. Um, <laughs> but for me, when I lamented, when I cried out to God, I actually experienced God's presence in a really powerful way, that God was with me even in the midst of my doubt, that he would never leave me or forsake me, and that he was okay with me crying out to him. And that was really powerful in deepening my relationship with God in this difficult time. And if we want a growing relationship with God, we actually have no choice but to invite God to walk through painful experiences with us. And this is how we move closer to God and how we experience his presence in our lives. Thirdly, lament expresses the reality that we do not accept uh, the suffering of this world that we don't accept that this is the way it's supposed to be. And so as, as, um, as uh, Bart said, this is an uprising against the disorder of the world. And so as followers of Jesus, we're not fatalists. We're not what will be will be. But we believe in a God who acts. We believe in a God who intervenes. And we believe in a God who has given us the privilege to influence what is happening in our lives and in the world through prayer. And so lament is a call for God to intervene. And in the lament psalms, the word shema, or listen, is used 79 times. This is the Hebrew word that means hear and respond. God, listen to our cry, listen to our pain, act justly in the face of our suffering. And there's no place where we see God's answer to human suffering more clearly than on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus bore our suffering and our pain. And it's no wonder he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are the words of Psalm 22. And Jesus' death on the cross is God's ultimate act of solidarity with human suffering. And so for us, the image of the cross can be really helpful for us as we lament. And so as we bring all that we are to Jesus, all our sorrow and our shames, shame and our feelings of powerlessness, and we call on God to be present to us in the, in the, with the image of the cross, we know that God knows what it is like to suffer. And, and that as we do this, that, and as our fears and our sorrow come in contact with Jesus, the man of sorrow, that Jesus understands, uh, that Jesus has borne our pain for us, and that our struggles and our wounds are not the final word that resurrection is the final word, that there is hope. Fourthly, lament is not something we do alone. It's something that we can do together as the body of Christ. And so I appreciated Kevin's prayer this morning because he invited us to lament with the family in your church that's suffering. 
And think of Eli as he stood with Hannah in the midst of her lament. And so lament can be practiced as solidarity with those who are suffering. Pastor Glenn Packham, in his article on lament, talks about this. He says, we love our neighbor when we allow them, we allow their experience of pain to become the substance of our prayer. We love our neighbor when we allow their experience of pain to become the substance of our prayer. And so lament is something we can do together, that we can support our brothers and sisters as they are suffering. And instead of judging them or offering them platitudes uh, that everything happens for a reason or that God is good all the time, we can join with them in their sadness. And so, again, I think it is important for a church to gather together and to create space for people to lament. And finally, lament is a journey from sorrow to hope. And just as Hannah left the tabernacle and her face was changed, so encountering God changes our perspective, that there's more happening than we're currently experiencing. And so even though we know that God does not cause suffering, we know that God uses our pain and brokenness for good to bring hope and healing and freedom to others and so just as hannah's story broke through israel's pain and their cycles of sin and led them into this amazing golden age as god enables us to stand up and to bring our sorrow to him as we see what god is doing is done god will enable us to stand with others and so as i look back on the hardest years of my life Uh, where I was so wounded um, by this Christian leader, I know that those are the years where God really developed in me a character and a trust and strengthened me to prepare me for all that God had called me to in the future. And so I'm really grateful that Jesus broke through the emptiness that I was experiencing and brought me to this place of fullness. And so as I close this morning, I want to give us time to lament together. And so again, we've already done a little bit about that, but I want to make it more personal. And so we're going to look at Psalm 13 together. And so so I'm going to read Psalm 13, and then I'm going to take us through a moment of prayer through it. And so, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And so this psalm, I'm just going to explain the structure of this psalm. It's slightly different than the one I mentioned before. So this psalm begins with a complaint to God. Um, Then the psalmist makes his request. There's additional arguments that he has. He brings his enemies before God. He acknowledges that God responds, and then he gives God praise. And so what I'm going to invite us to do here is if you come this morning with your own grief or painful things you're working through, I want you to lament for yourself. If you come and you are like, my life is great, I have nothing to lament over, (laughs) then I want you to lament for someone else. Maybe it's someone you know in this church. Maybe it's a problem happening in our city. Maybe it's people who don't have enough food to eat and are having to go to share. 
Maybe you want to lament for an issue in our country or some other country in the world like the Ukraine or Nigeria. And so as we gather together, I'm going to pray one of the lines of the psalm. Then I'll give us a moment and we can bring our own request to God. Um, and then I'll move us to the next section. So let's spend a few moments in prayer. So how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And so, God, we come to you this morning and we have questions. We have questions about our own experience in life. We have questions about suffering that our friends are going through, suffering that we see in our city or around our, our world. And so, God, we bring those questions to you. So take a few moments as we ask some of those questions to God. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. God, we ask, we cry out to you, and we ask that you will answer our prayers. And so lift up your prayers now. Make your request to God. God, if you don't answer our prayers, our enemy will say, I've overcome him, and our foes will rejoice when we fall. And so, God, we are your people, and we want to represent you. We want those who do not know you, those who are against you, to see your work in our midst. God, we ask that you will defeat the enemy, the one who brings disorder to the world, the one who brings chaos, the one who feels triumphant when the people of God suffer. God, we ask for your presence and your power to be in this world. We ask that you will overcome evil with good. In verse 5, the psalmist says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Take a few moments just to express what you can, if you're able to, the trust you have of God in the midst of the situation.
And the psalmist concludes with this, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And so God, we come before you and we do sing your praise that you are God almighty, that you are one who is above all and yet present in, the, in our midst, that you see us and you know us and you love us and you are present to us in all that we struggle with, all, that we're, all the questions we have, all the ways that we doubt. God, we thank you that you are good to us in the midst of this. And so make a, take a moment just to lift your praise to God. If you want to um, do that out loud, you can, or silently. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence here. I pray for your comfort and your presence in the midst of grief and sorrow in this place. God, I pray for your strength. Pray that you will empower uh, this church, that you will enable them to be present to others in their pain. God, I pray that they will see your goodness in their midst. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.